today. I am so excited to have Rachel Pajednik on with us. She is part of the Strong Process Conference, which she's going to talk to us a lot about. And one thing that's kind of unique about her story is that we actually met through a mutual friend who is the coach at my CrossFit gym. So that's how we got Rachel to be part of the show. I'm so excited that she's here today. And so Rachel, welcome. Hi, I'm so excited to be here and shout out to Dave Kim. Love him, miss him. In Boston. DK, absolutely. Um, I'm going to be seeing him later today, so that'll be great. Um, Great. Well, welcome, Rachel. And if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am an assistant professor at Simmons University here in Boston in the nutrition department. I have a PhD in nutritional biochemistry, so I really think a lot about how food is affecting our bodies at the molecular level. I also started a conference here in Boston, like you mentioned, called the Strong Process Forum, which is basically an all-day conference where we bring together experts in their field and all of the people that want the information that the experts are putting out. But as I always say, the academics suck at Instagram, so (laughs) we try to pull the two worlds together so that the academics are talking to the people in the fitness wellness space and then the fitness wellness people are helping to inform the scientists and teach them how to communicate their science to a lay audience, which is a really nice back and forth. Um, and then I like to say I walk the talk, so I'm an uh, indoor cycling instructor here in Boston at Flywheel Sports, and I'm also an ambassador with Specialized Bicycles, so I do a lot of um, pedaling as well. So That's fantastic. Yeah, you wear a lot of hats. Absolutely. So can you expand a little bit on the whole, um, I think you said scientists suck at Instagram or um, kind of how that came about, that idea came about, about how we could improve our communication of what we're doing? Yeah. So it's really been an interesting thing where I've, you know, half of my brain is always in academia. And so I've been doing, you know, pretty high level research, you know, pipetting my little face off in the lab for years. (laughs) And then, um, which is recently translated into a little bit more human-based research, so we're doing some more clinical-based research, and just the thought of how you translate that information from the lab to human beings. And then further, the other half of my brain has been in the fitness wellness space for a really long time, so my undergrad degree is in exercise physiology, And I've been working in that space, started out as a personal trainer, worked as a strength coach for a lot of teams here. And what I found was that most of the fitness wellness people are getting their information second, third, fourth, fifth hand at this point now that we've got 9,000 bloggers out there. And so what I really wanted to do was bring these two worlds together. So it felt like, you know, we're so privileged in the academic space where we go to these conferences and we get exposure to the people that are doing the best research at the highest level. And so how do we get that information to people that need it because they're the enthusiastic, passionate practitioners on the ground? And then how do we teach the academics to be the firsthand source of knowledge for the fitness experts, the wellness experts that are turning to a lot of these sort of, you know, interpretation websites or what have you um, that are, you know, filtering that information based on their bias. And so... I just thought it was really fun. So we've at Strong Process, we've got three panels, move, eat, and rest. We fill them up with three experts each. They each give kind of like a TED Talk. And the moderator is a wellness expert. So these are the people that 
the local, you know, we're in Boston, the local Boston's people see on a day-to-day basis. They're up on the stages, they're in the bar studios, they're doing the yoga. And so what we try to do is blend this idea of trust between both of these worlds. Um, It's really interesting. I actually wrote a paper, it's in review right now, that shows that clinicians don't trust personal trainers with their patients. And I'm like, well... You're not going to be doing the three by 10 exactly. in the gym, right? So like <laughs> what we need to do is build this bridge of trust between these two worlds. And that's where I saw a huge gap. And so with Strong Process, we're trying to fill it up. That is so, so great. I, I just love all of this because I, I think you're exactly right. I love the way you phrased it, that this information is kind of fourth and fifth hand. And I think in particular, you know, my background is pharmacy, but I feel like the supplement world and the, you know, kind of yes. nutrition world, there's so much misinformation out there. Or if it's not misinformation, it's just exaggerated one way or another or omitting one way or another. Um, one thing we had talked about before the show was the Cheerios example. Could you yeah. explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so this new report that just came out recently uh, was a report done by the Environmental Working Group, which sounds like a very official, like, government-based kind of organization. It's actually an activist group that's trying really hard to promote organic, you know, eating and farming, Mm -hmm. which on its face is totally fine. Um, But the problem is, is that a lot of the data that they put out is really skewed. So in this most recent example, they did a... um, independent study investigation of oats and grains and they found that glyphosate which is a pesticide you might know it as roundup Mm -hmm. um, is present in some of these cereals and what we do know about roundup is from the science from years and years and years and years of science is that it's a pretty safe pesticide you don't want to drink it like you don't want to take a full (laughs) bottle of aspirin right like if you're a pharmacist you're not gonna be like hey take this whole bottle for your headache one or two will do um You don't want to drink it, obviously, but farmers use it as a tool to keep our food production system safe. And what they did with the environmental working group is they did independent testing and they found trace amounts. And when we say trace amounts, these are like, you know, tens of thousands of times removed from the actual safety amounts that we talk about. And, um, you know, as a pharmacist, you know that there are safety limits that we look at in all of these, you know, pharmaceuticals, products, supplements. Um, And so I think the analogy was something like if you were to measure the miles of safety um, that the uh, scientists have come up with, it's like traveling from Boston to like the far side of Australia, so like Perth, Australia. Right. And so the environmental working group basically said was that they're going to say that the safety limits are the first mile outside of Boston. And so they found these teeny tiny trace amounts, which could even be blips in their testing methodology because they don't release their data or their methodology. So we have no idea how they even came up with these numbers. And then the media just sort of ran with it and said that there's glyphosate, this like, you know, a harmful chemical in your Cheerios. And I've got people messaging me and emailing me quite literally mothers in tears. Because oh, sure. Yeah. That they're giving their kids poison. And the reality is We don't actually even know if it's really in those foods because we don't know what the testing methods were. And even if it is occurring in those tiny amounts, it's well, well, well within the safety limits of this tool that farmers need in order to keep our food system safe. And so that just blew up in the last, you know, week or two. And it was really interesting. Actually, I was 
running a retreat on an organic farm in Northern California when this came out. So like the irony was just like, um, but I think what the sort of reality is here is that the stress that this is causing is significantly more harmful than the pesticides that may or may not even be in, in our food system. And so, you know, we need to be really careful about how we give information to the general public because as you just said, there's a context for it. Mm -hmm. And if we don't take the time to talk about the nuance and the context, then these headlines really terrify people. And that's probably worse in the long run. Absolutely. So uh, based on this, the conference, what have been some of the biggest takeaways as far as how we should be communicating information and maybe how we as educators and as researchers can do a better job of communicating? Yeah, so it's really interesting. So the format is set up that they're basically the experts are given 15, 20 minutes. So it's like a TED talk and they have to give their shtick in 15, 20 minutes. So you really got to get good at brevity, right? Where you can get a complicated topic across to a lay population in 15 or 20 minutes. And so what that means is you have to get really good at homing in on what your main message is. And we as, you know, practitioner, I mean, we as academics get really caught up in like p-values and, you know, like what is the nuance of this regression model? And the confidence intervals. Right. So that is a really important valid um, valid information and conversation to have within our academic circles when we're going through peer review. Like tear apart the maps because it's really important that we get it right. But then how do you take that information and make it digestible to the general population? Because here's what's happening is you get, you know, a blogger and like, God love it. Like I, I need to be really careful here because I love, love, love the fitness wellness space. And I absolutely respect my fellow passionate, enthusiastic, amazing practitioners because they dedicate their life to making sure that people are healthy. The problem is, is that a lot of the information that we're getting, and it's not just bloggers, it's, you know, the magazines that you see in the grocery store aisle. It's the headlines that you're seeing on the major news networks. It's the newspapers that we're seeing that, you know, these headlines, this clickbait is what sells. And so if we are not really careful in the scientific world about, I use the word competing with these Mm -hmm. headlines, then we are going to lose this conversation because the, the flashy bias is always going to trump the sort of like boring, you know, like nuance. And so what we got to do is get really good at saying, no, this is what the data says, even if it's bland and, you know, not clickbaity, we got to be out there talking about it because there's got to be a balance to this. I completely agree. I think that's a great point is that our patients are not reading the table of contents of journals that come to our inboxes. They're reading, you know, some of the bigger, like you said, clickbait, whatever's on social media um, and things like that. So I think that's a great point. So as far as all your different hats, what what would you say is your favorite part of your job? I love teaching. I, I love this idea of communicating information to new and excited minds. Um, one of the things that I love so much is being in a classroom and 
so I teach food science, which is a class that I just love so much. And, you know, everybody, all these young students, they're aspiring dietitians for the most part, come in with all this information that they've sort of been fed, right, because they haven't been officially in the classroom. And I, I get them um, in the semester of their sort of second or third year. So they've gone through all the sciences, and so they're ready to apply it. And I get them, and we're talking about food and how to apply food. And it's like, minds blown all over the room you know it's so cool when we can talk about you know how does a an egg white become a meringue you know and we actually go into the, the protein structure and how it changes itself and it's like light bulbs you know flashing all over the room I love that moment where you can take information and make it real and applicable to people and actually it's funny I learned to do that and I learned that I loved to do that when we were working, uh, when I was working with Dave. At oh, Air really? Academy. Yeah. That was my first, I, for the longest time, thought I wanted to be a physician, that mm. kind of doctor. I am mm. not that kind of doctor. Um, <laughs> um, and, I, and through that process of being in the classroom and teaching and learning, that's where I really started this journey down this sort of like education communication path. And I, I'm so grateful for that opportunity back in the day. That's fantastic. So it sounds like you teach in a variety of spaces. So like you mentioned, you have personal training experience, coaching experience, in addition to being an assistant professor, so in academia. So I always like to ask, what is a teaching strategy that you implemented that has been really effective? And then what is one that you've implemented that maybe hasn't been as effective and what you learned from that? Yeah. So this goes back to fair, hands down, is one of the first things that I learned about, especially teaching science is inquiry-based learning is where it sticks. So you asking questions and having people answer those questions and allowing people to ask questions of themselves, of the information, of the data. So I go back to this food science class. I literally leave 20 minutes at the end of every single class so that people can ask questions. And I say at the beginning of the class, you are going to have questions. Raise your hand and ask these questions. That, I find, is the most effective way to get information across for two reasons. One is people are learning information that they want to learn. So it sticks in their brains, number one. And number two, especially if we're teaching science, that's what the scientific method is, is asking questions and, and letting that door open 10 more windows, which open 10 more doors, because that's what, when we're thinking about how we get information and get data, we are continuously asking and answering questions. So that's the most effective. Absolutely. The, <laughs> the most ineffective way that I have found is kind of like the complete opposite of that, where you stand in front of a room with a, you know, a 90 minute PowerPoint and you're just like trucking through information. You look out into a classroom of people or you're just sort of like directing and you're shaking your finger at them and they're literally either falling asleep or checking their phones or, you know, it's just like the information is not alive to them. For that, I say, you know, of course, you need to know the, the information. You need to understand the keywords. You need to, you know, have an understanding of what's going on. But that's for sort of self-reflection. So mm -hmm. you go home, you read the textbook, you do the studying, you put the hours in, and you learn what the data is. The classroom is for exploration, and it's for asking, and it's for sharing of information. And that goes across the board. So, like, when I'm teaching a flywheel class, you know, like I'm asking people, I'm not physically communicating with them because the music is like really loud and, the, you know, <laughs> bumping and we're like tapping back and climbing hills. 
but I'm asking them to be reflective of themselves, of their body. How are you feeling today? You know, is today the day where you're going all out or is today the day where you're just like, you know, I'm just here in this room and I'm going to like make it through. Get through it. That's okay, right? So this idea of asking questions of the data, of yourself, that's where people learn and grow and begin to develop an understanding of who they are and what they want to know. Absolutely. I love that. So if you could go back to the first time you taught in any of these settings, or let's say someone was brand new and came to you like a brand new faculty member or something, what advice do you wish you had on your first day? Um, I think it is Hema Chodron that wrote this book. She's like a Buddhist monk that wrote this book called Fail and Fail Hard or something like that is as I think academics, we are all pretty type A people and we want things to be tight and we want it to like flow A to Z without missing any letters in between. We all think in straight lines and spreadsheets and the classroom is not that kind of a situation, right? So you've got to go in and you've got to be flexible. And if you get through everything, great. And if you don't get through everything, you say to the students, either we're going to do this next time or like go home and study. Welcome to like life. You know, you got to do this. And so I think as academics, as teachers, we often beat ourselves up like, oh, shoot, I didn't do that right. Or I didn't get, I didn't communicate that effectively. You know, there's always another teacher at Bayer that I love. Um, used to say that academics are like the, the, you have an eternal do-over, which I love, is they're going to show up if they, you know, they have class on Tuesday and Thursday, they're going to show up back on Thursday and you just say to them, hey guys, I just need to loop back on this for one quick second to make sure that I was clear. Or if you're like, I totally screwed that up and it was not X leads to Y, Y actually leads to Z. You take five minutes and you just correct it. And that's learning about the way that you teach is and, and being aware of those flaws and learning from them and, and building on them is just as effective for you as it is for your students. I completely agree. And I love that eternal do-over because yeah. like you said, I mean, I know certainly a lot of us are, like you said, type A perfectionists. So I think, you know, rather than going into a lecture thinking, okay, I'm going to do a minute per slide and then I'm going to do this active learning for 15 minutes. And then, and just like you said, it's going to depend on your class. I mean, how interactive is your class? How excited are they? How engaged are they? You know, how many questions do they have? And, um, I think you're exactly right. Just going in and not as much as you can, as hard as it is for us academics, not going in thinking that you're going to have a perfect lecture, you know? Um, and like you said, being able to circle back and being like, actually it was this, you know, or whatever. So I think that's a great point. Yeah. So, I mean, like don't wing it, you know, oh, like, yeah. have a plan. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, what is something really funny is that that's actually the sort of strong process is actually a um, business term. And I chose it years and years and years ago. It was a blog before we became a conference. And the sort of general premise is you can Google it, but the, the general premise of strong process is you have a goal in mind, but you're not rigid in how you're going to get to that goal. You know that there's going to be pit stops and you know that there's going to have to be sort of left and right turns. You're kind of like squiggling along that line to your outcome, but that that kind of a flexible business is what's going to lead to long-term change and long-term benefit because you're not super rigid along your structure. So if you're super rigid, you could be missing a lot of really important points in the classroom. You could be missing a lot of important questions in business. You could be missing a lot of 
inputs and you know information that you're receiving from the, the the world around you and so that's what i really loved about this idea of strong process is that there's a goal and for strong process for us we we say that it's the endeavor of excellence through health but that there's you know like some people are going to do really well on a paleo diet and some people are going to be vegan and that's all good and sometimes you're going to like try paleo and be like that didn't work for me and you're going to try something else and that this sort of like long and flexible pathway to your goal is not only acceptable but right absolutely so you had just mentioned um the one book uh are there any other books or podcasts or resources that have been helpful to you in your career that you would recommend? That's a great question. Um, I, you know, it's really funny. I haven't read like non-academic literature really in a a long time. And when I do, it's like cheap beach reads. Oh yeah. Brain candy. Um, (laughs) But I really love, you know, just for the general consumer, the New York Times Well blog is awesome. Hmm. Um, they do a really, really nice job, especially in the sort of nutrition and health space of breaking down data and not overreaching. Um, this woman, Tamar Haspel, who's a journalist, um, you can find her on social media, kind of everywhere. She is a really, really thoughtful voice in the um, space of, of nutrition and farming and sort of sustainable agriculture. Uh, I have this colleague that I love so much. Um, her name is Catherine Pett, and she's on at Nutrition Wonk everywhere on okay. all the social medias. And she is just like this incredible, you know, burst of energy. She's got this new podcast that she's starting out with called, I believe it's called N of One, hmm. which basically is she and a, a good colleague of ours, Kevin Klatt, who just um, got his PhD from Cornell, are starting out. Um, trying out all of these diets to see how they respond, how hard they are, what their grocery bill looks like, what their blood levels or whatever are. So they actually started out on the ketogenic diet this about a month ago. Perfect. So Very timely. They're two, yeah. They're two really, really well um, educated, also like superhuman people that are just, you know, just great. So I would say those are probably three really great resources. Those are great. I love that idea for a podcast too because then you can actually – because I think there are like some, you know, websites that review diets and stuff. But to actually hear people talk about them, that sounds really, that sounds really, really interesting. Yeah, that have literally like a master's degree and a PhD in the nutrition. So they not only understand the science but now they're experimenting with it to see what it's doing for their singular body, which is pretty cool. That is so cool. So with all of your approaches to teaching um, and the different uh, things that you participate in, you started your own conference, which is amazing. Who inspires you or where do you get your best ideas? Um, you know, I, I am completely inspired by all of the really high-level thinkers around me. And I mean that in both sense of the spaces that I work in. So when I'm working with the fitness wellness world, you know, if you're not involved in that space, it is a hustle. Like people work so hard to be present for their people, to be amazing on social media, to be, you know, uh, fit and strong and all of the people. So Boston's a really small fitness wellness community. And I admire 
all everybody in this community because they're just hustling their butts off to make sure that the people around them are really healthy while also trying really hard to keep themselves healthy. And then in the academic space, you know, I love people that are challenging to others, right? So I love people that are willing to say, I have this viewpoint, but I'm also willing to follow the data and to talk to somebody that is feels differently than me. So some people that I really love in the academic space are Kevin Hall. He's down at the NIH. Um, he did the Biggest Loser study. Mm-hmm. And to listen to him speak, he's just, you know, he's just so real. And he's just like, this is what the data shows. But like tomorrow, the data might change. And we're going to go where the evidence leads us. Um, Kevin Folta is this really awesome scientist down at the University of Florida. He gets a ton of heat because he's a um, sort of an advocate for GMOs. And so, like, the food uh, the food babe, like, tears him up all the time, you know, like, she has any idea what she's talking about. And <laughs> he's just, like, so strong and convicted in this, like, no, we're going to follow the data. And we're also going to have a conversation about when the data changes, where that goes. And so I really respect that mentality in the academic space is that you're not rigid and stuck in what you were taught when you got your PhD back in the day, but that you're really willing to see and to go where the data leads you. And I think that's a great point about the people that challenge or the people that kind of pioneer against the the grain because I feel like too with social media in particular, it's so much easier to just go along and retweet and use the same hashtags and kind of go along with, with what everyone is saying. And so to really have the courage to go out against it and be able to take that flack is really impressive. I totally agree. Yeah. And, you know, I think the thing is, is that there's a flip side to that coin too, which is like, I'm going to be the contrarian for everything and like, I'm actually going to be a complete lunatic about it, which there are, there are cults and cult leaders in the nutrition space where people are just like, this is the way to go. There is no other way to go. Nothing else is acceptable. And so I'm not talking about those people because there's like, you know, on either side of the spectrum where it's like, they're saying something that's, that is completely new and like, off the rails and they're completely convicted in that, which is the opposite side of being convicted in where the data has, you know, traditionally laid. So I like the people that are in the middle that are on this sort of like strong process wiggle path that are like, Hey, we're going to, you know, lead toward where the data is going, but we're going to dip into new information and, and ask more questions as data comes out. Awesome. Well, my last question for you, which I know is kind of a tough one, but what is your overall prescription for success and happiness in this crazy career of academia and in general? Yeah, so um, (laughs) I think my three pillars of, of health are move, eat, and rest. And so outside of the grind and the meat grinder that academia can be, figuring out how to get those into your life in some fashion. So moving your body doesn't necessarily have to be exercise. It could be standing up in the middle of the day. Um, Nutrition is figuring out how to get the most nutritious foods that we can because it's going to make our brains work better. And then figuring out how to get some kind of rest. And of course, we know that sleep is the most important part, Um, but that sometimes there's grant deadlines and we need to meet those grant deadlines, but recognizing that it's an important part of your day to day is I think really important. Um, I think in academia, and this is actually what the the next strong process is going to be in November, 
is it's all about mental health. So we're looking at move, eat, and rest in the context of mental health. And if we look at very high-level practitioners, we see this level of burnout is just really overwhelming, and it's sort of coming in like a free train. And we need to be really cognizant of that because we are really driven type A kind of people. And if we're not aware of when we are feeling burned out and we keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing, that's when bad things happen. And so it's not, it's funny, like people always like, what's the one trick that you can do? Like there isn't, and it's not easy. And that's the, that's the reality of it. Like that's what we talk about all the time. A strong process in my classrooms is, this is not easy and there isn't a magic pill. Like it would be awesome or not if there was, but that part of figuring out how to incorporate all of this into our life is the part of the journey. This is the part of a sort of like wellness side of my brain journey is that you need to be able to blend both of these together. So long answer, but <laughs> I think the reality is, is that there are some healthy behaviors that we need to pay attention to and getting them into your day-to-day, even if slash when they are hard, is really important. And I really like that your focus of the next conference is on mental health because I think there is a very clear link between nutrition and mental health, even though in particular in the pharmacy and medicine space, that might not be the first thing that we jump to, you know? And so I think I think that's really, really important. So thank you so much. Um, absolutely my pleasure. 